Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, a professor of economics here at George Mason University, and along with Arnold Kling, the host of Econ Log, the blog at the Library of Economics and Liberty. Brian and I are going to talk today about the economics of discrimination and government regulation of labor markets. Brian, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me, Russ. Now, Brian, economics discrimination is a topic that, that starts in the modern era, at least, with, uh, with Gary Becker's work. And one version of Gary Becker's work is that uh, the marketplace will punish discrimination, and discrimination will eventually die out because it's costly. Uh, if you discriminate against workers of equal ability, uh, whatever their race or sex, you're going to be paying a price because you're going to be missing a market opportunity. And over time, that's going to cause discrimination to disappear. Is that an accurate representation of, of the way economists look at discrimination? It's a little rosy. Is, is you say that's accurate and, and maybe there's a little more nuanced view. Right. I mean, what I would say is that if you had to give a very short description of how economists think differently about discrimination from non-economists, that would be a good way of thinking about it. However, if you go and actually look about the debates among economists themselves, there you'll have a discussion about uh, you, to what, you know, does the market actually eliminate discrimination 100%? Does it just eliminate 90%, 80%? Uh, so, I mean, the, the kinds of debates you'll have among economists are at the margin. The basic point that you just said is something that pretty much any labor economist will agree with. But uh, you know, there, there's still some discussion about the, you know, the exactly how well that uh, the market checks on discrimination do work. And if we look at, say, uh, at wages of different groups, obviously there are differences in wages. Some of those differences may be due to uh, differences in ability or education or skills. Obviously, age differences, there could be demographic differences between groups. But when economists do control for those differences, they do find a residual wage difference that still exists, and that's often attributed to discrimination. What are some of the sources of of that discrimination? What are the different ways of looking at that? Well, uh, it's interesting that you would say that, Russ. Uh, I've actually done some econometrics on this, not for uh, published papers, but just for teaching classes. There's a number of kinds of discrimination which, uh, just putting into uh, regular statistical, statistical controls, uh, just completely disappear. So uh, just to take the most extreme example, uh, if you take a look at the black-white gap in uh, annual uh, annual labor earnings, if you put in controls for the following, uh, let me see if I remember this correctly, you put in controls for education, IQ score, family structure, in particular uh, whether or not uh, you're, you're, mar- you're married, um, whether you're married, divorced, single, and a uh, number of children. Let's see, if I uh, put in, let's see, age as well. Anyway, if you, if you just put in uh, really a fairly short list, but in particular the IQ measure, you can actually see the entire black-white gap goes away. So quite surprising. Well, I, and I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true over time. Uh, I mean, this is true on modern data for yeah. you know, for, for the 90s. So, but it, but it, it is worth pointing out that that's one example. And actually, in the National Longitudinal Study of Youth, you uh, there essentially um, it's a little bit odd, but the way that they break down races in the National Longitudinal Study of Youth is you have white, black, and other races. So the other races include Asians, Hispanics, anyone else who doesn't feel comfortable putting, those, putting themselves into that category. But the interesting thing is that if you just do a usual regression, uh, you'll you see that uh, people, of other, uh, people who are in the other race category earn less. But once you add in these controls, they actually appear to earn a little bit more. 
And when you say regression, that's a statistical technique yes. for trying to control for mm-hmm. differences that mm-hmm. uh, might – other things beside race that might explain – Right, just trying to do an apples-to-apples comparison. Uh, there has been certainly over time uh, a narrowing of the absolute – uncontrolled for wage mm-hmm. gap, say, correct, between correct. men and women or blacks and, and whites. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to go back to that mm-hmm. to that issue. Um, if it has, in fact, disappeared, if, if discrimination has, in fact, been reduced to something close to zero, when you, quote, fully control for things, uh, that could be due to a variety of forces besides mm-hmm. the ones we're talking about. Right, so I want, to, I want to step back from – we'll come back to government involvement in a, in a little bit, but I want to step back and just say – in a, in a competitive marketplace, in a place where employers are trying to hire workers and make profits, workers are searching for jobs among different employers, what is the uh, economic uh, prediction about how discrimination will evolve over time because of the profit motive? What will the profit motive do to potentially reduce discrimination? Uh, that's a good question, Russ. The you know, simple story is uh, that you know, if you want to stay in business, you can uh, either you can care about profits, you can care about a lot of other things. However, over time, who are the people who are going to act, who are actually going to get to stay in business? Right. So if you have people who are uh, people who only care about profits competing about competing with people who care about pro- both profits and race, uh, you should expect that over time the people who only care about profits are going to come to predominate because the people who care about two things have trouble competing. And, you know, very similar way, you know, very similar to sport, in sports, the people who actually are very successful are generally single-minded. And so people who are very successful in sports or anything are often uh, really, in a sense, obsessed with that. Focused. But yes, be focused on that, uh, maybe a better way of putting it. And it's very hard for people who are, fo- who are not so focused to compete with those who are focused. Now, in the case of business, if you have, on the one hand, employers who care about, about both profits and race and make hiring decisions partly based on profits, partly based on race, and they are up against other businesses where the employers are only concerned with profits. Uh, over time, the ones that are only concerned with profits are going to outcompete ones that are concerned with uh, other things and as well. Explain why that's true. Uh, well, uh, you know, you know, suppose that you you have the option of hiring two workers. One of them is more profitable, but is of a race that you don't like. The other one is uh, less profitable, but of the race you like. If you have uh, one, you know, if you have one employer who only cares about profits, he'll hire the better worker. On the other hand, you have the other employer who cares about both. He may wind up going and hiring the worker that he thinks is not as good, won't, won't actually bring in as much money, but he prefers the race. Now, if you, uh, in general, in, in business, if you have one firm that is, uh, uh, that is uh, tri- producing at the lowest possible cost or is getting the most value for its money, in this case, you know, pay, you know, paying for a given wage, getting the best possible workers, uh, it's going to be possible for them to uh, sell their products at a lower price, provide, or, provide or higher quality at the same price, and uh, consumers are going to go for that. But, of course, it's possible that if all employers are racist or sexist, then that's not going to work, right? That's, that's absolutely right. So if you actually had every single employer a racist uh, to an equal degree, then this wouldn't work. Uh, the key thing is, of course, that's a very unrealistic assumption. People are different. Even in societies where, everyone, where people are on average very racist, there are some people who are fanatically racist, even who are, who are considered racist even by the standards of other people in their society. And on the other hand, you have people who are less racist, maybe not completely not racist, but less so. Now the thing is, is that over time, as long as you have this distribution of preferences, the people who are more who are more racist are going to lose out to those who are less racist. And then this is something that doesn't quite come out of the economics, but it's uh, very plausible. It's just that over time, when people see that people who are less racist are more successful, they may also start to think, well, why was I racist to begin with? What's really so great about being a racist? Uh, you know, if I have a choice between being extremely successful 
or being or being racist, maybe I can actually become more flexible and say, hey, you know, I don't really actually care about race as much as I thought I did now that I see all this money that I can make by hiring based on merit. Well, I, I think I think that is economics. I think just it's a little harder maybe to model it formally, mm-hmm. but I think that's a that's a that's a fascinating mm-hmm. point. So I, I like that idea. I mean, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. It's not the way we usually think about it. I think in public discussions of the issue, the way we usually think about it is you're either a racist, you hate mm-hmm. a particular race, or you're not. You're mm-hmm. a fine human being who's who's unbiased and 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 unprejudiced. But you're right. There there's a there's a range, mm-hmm. and it's an interesting conjecture that market forces in the form of success are going to enhance the uh, success and profitability of the, the least racist ones because mm-hmm. they'll have a market edge uh, and that that market edge may mm-hmm. may attract other people to that to that niche, the least racist uh, people. Right. And also it's kind of interesting when you just do the arithmetic of discrimination – uh, there's a great part in Steve Landsberg's book Fair Play where he just goes over how profitable could you be if you, you know, if you know if for example you take a look at the uh, earnings gaps between blacks and whites if you thought that was entirely just due to discrimination so if you thought that there was a say a 25% difference in earnings that was entirely due to discrimination how profitable could a firm be if it simply fired all of its white workers hired equally competent black workers for 25% less and what Landsberg shows in a number of examples is since labor is the main cost of doing business the change oh, yeah. in profitability is 25, enormous. 25%. Yes. So, and the same would be true with women where mm-hmm. – uh, I haven't looked at it lately, but in the old days, I think the the standard uh, female-to-male uh, wage ratio was 67%, mm-hmm. I think was the old – I think it's gone up. Mm-hmm. Just Again, these are just the – just the crude ratio, uncorrected for education or skill or experience or age or anything. But mm-hmm. uh, if if it's true that employers like hiring men, say, because they're racist, because they're sexist, uh, they're paying a fearsome price for it if that's mm-hmm. the only difference. But, of course, there's a possibility mm-hmm. that part of those differences are due to skill differences or, or innate differences or, or the nature of the job or whatever or whatever it is. And that the actual difference still could be small. I think the I think the interesting due to due to discrimination. Mm-hmm. I, I think the interesting case here is that is the one you made that that there is a market incentive that pushes uh, employers to uh, to hire the races that are discriminated against, and to the extent there's a distribution of tastes for discrimination, that that definitely is going to play a role. Now, also, I think you know, interesting point along these lines. If you ever watch late night television and you find out about how you can get rich if you start your own alpaca farm, or you alpaca can get, farm, alpaca farm, or you can get rich. If I've you never go, seen that yes. one. Usually, it's it's. Uh, uh, I thought it was usually real estate with no money down. Real estate. I've seen alpacas. There's there's You've a lot really of. You've seen alpacas. Oh yeah, I've definitely seen alpacas. That would be a large furry animal, something That's akin correct. to a llama, if yes. I'm not mistaken. So you can go watch these ads, and they explain how if you just go and send ten or twenty thousand dollars, they will ship you your own alpacas, and how they're <laughs> wonderful animals, and uh, the price just keeps going up, and uh, you're going to be rich very quickly. And of course, when people with common sense watch these ads, they say, you know, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. You know, there's no way that you can just be a normal person, start an alpaca farm, and start having the money co- rolling in, or at least you have to be very gullible to think that's true. You know, maybe there's a one in a million chance it is true, but quite unlikely. And yet, running an alpaca farm actually must take a lot of brains. It's not that easy, so maybe someone who could who run an alpaca farm well actually could make money. doesn't mean that you could. Now, on the other hand, if you think about what you know, the common view of discrimination and what's going on, it would not take a lot of brains to to set up a firm where your where your get rich quit scheme is hire only women. Anyone could do that. 
anyone could just apply rule of when you know just hire women and uh, and if that were if it were really that simple uh, someone have already done it people are looking for ways to get rich quick, quick get rich quick and yet say getting rich in real estate just to follow the 10 step program they offer you would probably take quite a bit of effort many people couldn't do it right and just because it's too hard the 10 steps are too complicated the, right. step the 10 up, steps this, are, yes. are real yes. it's not it's not a it's not yes. a fraud yes. it's a semi fraud yes. so these we're, get we're, rich we're, quick where's the one step of just hiring people who are who are supposedly underpaid that's pretty easy yeah, to that's, implement. That's pretty easy. If, I, if, it were, if that were all that were, that were everything, everything, all the whole story, I'm sure that would be very easy. That would be the ultimate get rich quick scheme. I'm sure our listeners are relieved to, to find the connection between alpaca farming mm-hmm. and discrimination mm-hmm. uh, it is real. Yes. Uh, but my, my get, get rich quick schemes and the, and the usual view <laughs> of discrimination. If the usual view were right, there would be a get rich quick scheme on every corner because you would just say, look, who are people who are underpaid? Let's hire them. Right, but again, that's a little bit of a straw man because you've basic or straw woman, uh, whatever the right uh, and non-discriminatory description. I guess it's hard to know which is more uh, tasteful, I I, I, straw I man or straw woman, because it's not an attractive creature, mm-hmm. the straw man. So maybe yes. it's it's better to say straw man than, than straw, straw, person. straw person. Straw person, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, scarecrow. 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 Better, better. Yeah. Well, it's unfair to the, the birds. Um, but. It's a bit of a, st- a straw person, scarecrow example you're using because, you're, again, you're taking sort of this extreme uh, case where you're arguing that uh, the common view of discrimination is – it's excuse me – the common view of observed wage differences is all due to discrimination. The fact – I think you're right. It's unlikely that it's all due to discrimination. Mm-hmm. The question is, is there some residual? Let's, let's take mm-hmm. that as a given. Sure, Let, sure. Let's assume there is some – uh, wage differences out there that that could be due to discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else that economics has to say about how unlikely it is that that can persist? What other what other market forces, as opposed to governmental forces, might further reduce that discriminatory discriminatory component? Mm-hmm. Is there anything else to add either about entrepreneurs mm-hmm. or? Well, I mean, I think just in terms of the arithmetic, so you're, you're right, of course, that if uh, women were really paid 67 cents for every dollar value that they produced, there would be a get-rich-quick scheme. But the thing is, is that, as you, as you can see, if you work through some of these examples that Lansford gives, gives in Fair Play with a fantastic book, uh, that even if, say, only 10% of that difference were due to discrimination, you might very well easily be able to double your profits. So if you have a usual rate of return of 3%, and if 10% of a 33% difference is due to discrimination... That uh, that means that you could cut your your cost by a little bit more than three percent, and if which, wait, is, yes, which no, sounds small, yes, but sounds an enormous small, number. But it, yeah, but if your rate return is three percent to begin with, you're yeah. you're going from say three percent to say five percent. So, you know when you consider well, labor isn't all the cost, but it's most of the cost. So to tell an entrepreneur you can go from three percent three percent rate of return to five percent rate of return is the holy grail and is the holy yeah, grail of business. It's amazing. Thing. So even if it's only ten percent of the observed difference, actually discrimination, that would still be really quite amazing. Now. Uh, people who are skeptical about market forces and, and don't want to rely on these type of incentives that we're talking about, uh, who want to see something more dramatic. Some of these changes would take time. It would take maybe a while for people to realize some of these uh, facts. It might take a while for people to catch on the, that, that the less discriminatory employers mm-hmm. are doing better. Um, Possibly, although they might also jump the gun. What we saw with the Internet is when people thought there was a new business opportunity in the future, they started doing it before it was, would actually work. <laughs> yeah. So I, I can easily see that if, you know, once someone, if someone sees writing on the wall that hiring members of a group that's been discriminating against is going to work, they may, may actually go overboard 
It may turn out that the simple rule of just hiring only members of the group that is paid less may actually turn out to be a bad idea, maybe going too far. No. Yeah, I guess I guess again the pessimistic view would be even though there might be a, a, a distribution of discriminatory feelings, mm -hmm. the the least mm -hmm. discriminatory person might still be so discriminatory mm -hmm. that it's a very unpleasant uh, thing for the members of the discriminated against group to to work and live in that society. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting that you view that as the pessimistic view, because of course it's also often thought that economists are to, that, that it's it's pessimistic to think that people or that it's let's see what would be a good way of thinking about it that. Uh, it's, it's, it's often thought that you know, the problem with markets is precisely that businesses only care about profits. And, this, and it's seen that economists are, optimi are, 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 are optimistic to think that things can still work when people only care about profits. Now, here's a case when if, if people only care about profits, discrimination won't happen. And then this is seen as being too optimistic. So. Yeah, I like that, Brian. That's a, that's a great point. But, but let me persist in it anyway. Yes. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a minute. because mm -hmm. uh, I, I do like that observation. Um, but let's say you're worried about this because you you, you don't believe uh, that that racism or sexism or whatever you're worried about is going to be uh, eliminated by this profit motive, and so you ask for uh, you want the government to do something about it. And in our in recent years, in recent decades, there have been many many active government programs mm -hmm. to uh, improve uh, wage rates and employment opportunities for certain uh, certain groups. But the record of government in uh, fighting discrimination is a very mixed one. Mm -hmm, of course. And I'd like you to give some examples. I, I, I've heard you talk about some examples where uh, the marketplace was working to eliminate discrimination, and and, and yet the government actually uh, went the other way. And I, I think that would be of, of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I mean, South Africa is a very interesting case. Uh, Walter Williams, uh, the former chairman of our department, has an entire book on this. I think it's called South Africa's War Against Capitalism, or War, I think it's War Against Capitalism. Uh, basically talks about uh, the origin of a lot of apartheid in South Africa was that you have uh, white workers who are losing jobs to black workers because white employers, mostly most South African employers were white, still uh, when it actually came down to the bottom line said I can either hire a white worker or I can hire a black worker and the black worker is willing to work for less and so I will make more money if I'll hire a black worker. So a lot of what happened with apartheid uh, was basically uh, passing regulations to try to stop employers from doing this. Say, look, you're being selfish, you're being greedy, you're not considering your race. You need to consider that you need to consider broader social issues like the need to protect the white race. And we are going to pass some regulations making it hard for you to employ blacks in certain jobs, making it hard for you to pay them certain amounts. And so this is this is one example. You get a lot more details in, in Walter's book. Is there, are there was there evidence then that the wage gap that would predict that the wage mm -hmm. gap between blacks and whites was shrinking uh, as as employers mm -hmm. were taking advantage of this. Do you know if that's true? I think I mean I think apartheid was coming in in the 20s, so it's unlikely that there's any very good data on that. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean you could go and consult an historian, and a historian might give you his impression, but I'm not sure if there's any actual data on that. Well, there's an there's an American version of this. A couple, unfortunately. Um, uh, Jennifer Roback uh, in in 1984 wrote an article on regulation. Uh, she now writes her her. Her name is now Jennifer Roback Morris. Some of you may know her work, but uh, as Jennifer Roback, she wrote an article in Regulation Magazine on the Jim Crow laws uh, in the South, and I, I wasn't aware of these. They're rather remarkable. Uh, these were state laws mm -hmm. uh, in the past, in the roughly 1895 to uh, 19 early part of the 20th century. I'm not sure how far. Well, Early part of the 19th of the 20th century, these laws were passed. Rather remarkable um, laws to keep down competition from 
uh, black workers for white uh, with white workers, it was against the law in many states to entice a laborer who was employed to switch firms. Uh, and so it was a criminal offense. Uh, so if you uh, if you were under contract as the as the worker and you switched jobs, you could actually be arrested. That would certainly mm-hmm. reduce um, labor mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, e- even more uh, depressing, perhaps, is that uh, anybody who was – I'd say no, this won't be more depressing. I think that was kind of the limit. But uh, if you went out and recruited someone to leave the state mm-hmm. or leave the county even to work at a different place, the recruiter could be fined up to $5,000. Um, unemployment was against the law. If you were a uh, – let me see if it's let's make sure I got this right. Um, yeah, there was a vagrancy law that basically any person wandering or strolling about in idleness who is able to work and has no property su- to support him, if you're a vagrant in that uh, sense, you were often sentenced to state or county chain gangs, which made it hard. Uh-huh. This is Alabama and other states. Um, you, you were sentenced to a chain gang, so again, probably didn't spend a lot of time between jobs or take a risk quitting a job in hopes of finding another one. And all these laws were designed to reduce the attractiveness of black labor in the South at the turn mm-hmm. of the 20th century, which the market was eager mm-hmm. to, to take advantage of. But the employers themselves, as you mentioned in South Africa, couldn't constrain themselves, mm-hmm. restrain themselves, and, and were seeking profits. Right. And also, the, you know, the mobility issue is very interesting because if, as seems plausible, the uh, distribution of racist preferences was less racist in the North than the South. One of the things that Southerners would have to be afraid of is that Northern employers would, uh, who were less racist would go and uh, and bid that labor away, and blacks would move to the North. Which so, is, of course, what yes. happened ultimately. Right. So if you do if you do have an area where the least racist person is still pretty racist, part of part of the part of the concern of pe- of, um, of of people who like that situation and and, and want to make sure that discrimination persists is to make sure that there isn't any exit to a place where uh, pre- where the least racist person is less racist than the least person where you least racist person where you currently are. Yeah. And and of course that's uh that is exactly what happened in what what time period would that have been in the 40s and 50s in America was the large migration to the north? I think it started earlier actually. 30s. Yes. You know, another example of this which is um it's funny how in America these are often given as um They're shrouded in romance, the, these regulations, but they had this a very unpleasant side of, uh, of being discriminatory. Uh, the Davis-Bacon Act, which requires employers uh, working on government uh, projects to pay the prevailing wage, which was defined by the courts to be the union wage there, uh, that which was passed in 1931, and its, its champion is a great example of making sure that workers aren't exploited, is clearly a case, uh, if you look at the history of it, where the motivation for keeping out, uh, for keeping wages high, was to discriminate against unskilled black labor, which was not unionized at the time. I've heard that too. I think it's true. Um, minimum wage is an interesting example. Uh, minimum wage now has suddenly become uh, okay, uh, perhaps because of I think two studies that suggest that it. That it doesn't hurt employment, but there was a, before that an, an enormous number of studies mm-hmm. that suggested that the minimum wage did reduce employment, especially among uns, unskilled workers, and therefore was discriminatory against uh, against blacks. And um, and yet it's championed as a as a aid to the worker.
Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Well, uh, I mean, what you just said, uh, I agree with completely. Uh, maybe, maybe a good idea to go and explain it a little bit better. So, go ahead. Fire a, little, away. a little bit more. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so, key thing is that if you do have a minimum wage, uh, you know, and and the result of this is that there's unemployment, a surplus of labor. Well, uh, what are employers going to do? Right. So, if you have a whole bunch of workers who are around, they're all equally good. There's there's a line of them, and you have to pick one. Who are you going to pick? Well, it seems like you'll pick the person that you personally like the most. Right. So, for you know, it's often remarked that under rent control, if you have a hundred different people vying for one apartment, you can't charge any one of them more than any other. Well, uh, why not go and pick someone that you that you personally like? Why not pick the person who has the best smile, the person that that uh, that uh, you know that you just think is nice, or, is or maybe the person who looks like you? Yeah. Right. So, and you basically get the same thing with the minimum wage or other labor market regulations. When you cannot compete on when you cannot compete in terms of price, when the wage can't go down, uh, then you wind up competing in other margins. Of course, you know if there's some difference in quality, you might pick the person that you think is just the very best worker. Right, but if you but it's hard to tell that you might pick the worker that looks most like that might mo, that looks most like you. It's kind of interesting in terms of Europe. And so in Europe, as uh, you may know, uh, the you know minimum wage is of course you know, much higher in much of Europe, and but they also have a lot of other regulations that are like the minimum wage in terms of trying to push wages up to where, uh, higher where they otherwise be. The consequence is that in a lot of European countries you have very very high unemployment, which has persisted for decades. Now, a secondary consequence is that this means that immigrants in, immigrants in Europe have a tougher time finding a job because if the wages can't come down, then what's the point of hiring someone, giving them a chance uh, when, when uh, you're not sure what's going on with them? Or when they right? have yes. just, on average, a lot of immigrants to Europe and recently mm-hmm. in the United States mm-hmm. are going to have <clears throat> lower skill levels. Right, right, sure. So sure. their productivity is lower. Mm-hmm. To make it worthwhile for you to hire them, you'd have mm-hmm. to pay them a lower wage to so mm-hmm. make it worthwhile. Right, you know, also striking within the European Union, uh, generally you can't. You know, the people in Europe, in the European Union, are now generally allowed legally to migrate to other countries in the European Union and work there. But you don't see so much of it, and probably part of it is just because wages are kept up, so the people feel that the natives of the country are probably going to be preferred to someone who's just shown up. Partly that may be due to language differences or skills, but it also could just be uh, because people prefer people from their own country, and uh, these regulations give people an incentive or make it less costly to act on that preference. Yeah, the European case is an interesting one. The uh, their high unemployment rate is even worse for young workers. Mm-hmm. Again, for the mm-hmm. same reason, mm-hmm. we're now talking about young workers who are not immigrants. Um, although I'm sure it's it's worse for immigrant workers. Young workers, on average, having uh, less experience and fewer skills than older workers are going to find it harder to persuade an employer to hire them if the wage is artificially high. Uh, do you know, you know – my memory is that in France, that number for unemployment for younger workers, which uh, you know, maybe work 18 to 24, is, is something close to 25%, if I remember correctly, the numbers I've seen. It's possible, but I haven't seen the numbers. Um, try to check that. But do, do you know if the minimum wage differs across countries in Europe? Uh, it definitely differs across countries in Europe, yes. So France is notorious for having an extremely high minimum wage relative to the average earnings uh, that's probably the probably the most extreme case as far as I understand. Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, Britain Britain and the Netherlands regulations are weaker. Also, also for example, the Netherlands often has a grandfather provision where if you hire a new worker, he won't be subject to the same regulations as an existing worker. So that's the way that they've got that they've uh, mitigated some of the effective regulations in uh, the Netherlands to try to encourage people to mm-hmm. quote take mm-hmm. a chance on a on a worker. Mm-hmm. I just wonder why you know you say that. That there's less of an incentive to to immigrate across Europe within within Europe. You'd think that if you were in a country with a high minimum wage and you're having trouble mm-hmm. finding work, that you'd 
go to a country with a lower minimum wage and mm-hmm. have a higher chance. Uh, right. You know, all else equal, that may be true. But you know, if uh, you know, if as long as they do have a surplus of labor in the other country, you still may be last in line to get a job. Yeah, it's true. I guess the other issue is the the social safety net, which mm-hmm. might compensate for that lack of employment opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, that's that's also definitely part of the story. But an interesting question there is how long that that situation can persist. Um, they do pretty well given their regulatory environment. They don't have much job growth. Um, they don't, and they have this high unemployment rate. But they, most European countries have a relatively high standard of living. The question is, is there any tendency for that to to diminish? They seem to, there seems to be some unease about the stability of that situation. Do you think that's true? Is, is that the case? You know, I think that, there's, that their growth is still going to be positive. So I don't think things are going to get worse in absolute terms. In relative terms, uh, it seems quite likely that things will continue to get worse. I would personally like to question the assumption that Europeans do have all that great of a standard of living. Just in, ter- you know, term- in terms of having been there, I mean, there's, there's just a number of ways in which the living standards of most Europeans are markedly worse than those in the United States uh, in terms of car ownership, uh, eating meat, uh, square footage of your home. And these are things that are very important to people. So uh, air conditioning, again, uh, very important to me personally. Uh, well, I like that example reason. only because uh, – actually, let's, let's take a few of those. Uh, that's kind of interesting. We're off the topic of discrimination mm-hmm. now. Like we're into the European standard of living, which is, um, which is fine because I think it's very interesting. Uh, and I'm sure it'll have something to do. We can come back and talk a little bit about the American standard of living. Um, uh, home ownership. We talked about home ownership, car square, ownership, square, square footage, of square homes. footage. Yeah, yeah not small, excuse me, square homes. footage. Yeah, they have, they have small homes. They're less likely to have a car. I think the the counter argument mm-hmm. would be, well, they don't need a car. They have a much better public transportation system. Um, There's also a lot more to see in Europe. Uh, <laughs> In the, I would it's actually say in Europe, hard to quantify that, Brian. I don't know. <laughs> well, having, having been there, I'd say in Europe, the actual benefits of owning a car are greater than here because you can drive for two hours and you can be in a totally different country and see the history of, of a thousand years. But you can do that on a train in Europe. <laughs> There's the inconvenience of it to be able to just get into your car and drive. I think a lot, I, lot better I than having to, agree to go, with go to you. a train station. Yeah. Oh, but that's very charming. Get your, get your ticket. European and, train station yeah. too. You got to keep that in. You got to control yeah. well, for that. I think when, well, if you've been a European, I don't think you appreciate what's, what's great about a European train station. I, well, that's the that's you, the question. Like, you like to have a car like an American. Oh, that's the question. Uh, Europe has high gasoline taxes, very high, um, multiple dollars per gallon. So the price of of gasoline is is uh, can be what five, six, seven dollars a gallon, I think, in your in Europe. So gasoline is very expensive because of a tax. Uh, the urban centers are fairly close together, so they discourage car ownership and car use, and they then substitute for public trains or other whatever they or whoever owns their trains. I don't know. I assume they're they're public. Um, the, I don't find that so appealing because I like my car. Um, and I'll give you a, a similar example in the square footage of homes. Uh, European homes are smaller. Uh, I think dramatically so per per, mm-hmm. per person, uh, per family uh, member, household number of household members. But the, the counter argument would be yes, but they have these wonderful parks that 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 they can go to, and, and we have our backyards. So it's not just square footage of homes; it's square footage of land and lot. So Americans live on these big suburban lots because of sprawl. Europeans live in these small, yes, a little more cramped, but they have these wonderful public spaces. Now, I I think the relevant question in both of those cases transportation and, and home, uh, is well, do they want it to be different? Is it a political uh, a set of political forces that has imposed these either out of ignorance or special interest pleading, 
uh, or is it just a matter of taste? Uh, Europeans don't care as much as you do, Brian, about the thrill of getting in your car, that convenience. They like the charm of the station, the bag, you know, the croissant, the the baguette of bread, the the coffee at the at the station masters, you know, whatever. What do you think? I don't know. Well, I think there's probably there's partly difference in taste and partly it's a partly difference in price. And the you know, way to see is if the price were similar. You know, I mean, at least from my experience, when Europeans come to the U.S., I mean, again, there's there's some element of selection. Not, but well, if they're just visiting, though. Yeah, they're but not they're, moving they're, here. Yeah. Well, let's see. I mean, sort of the problem with visiting is they don't, you know, they, they go to New York where they see basically the most European lifestyle that American that Americans lead, or San Francisco. Yes, where they the cramped, yes. non-car lifestyle. Yes. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I often, I often say that Europeans, they want to see what, what the United States is actually like. They need to leave New York and San Francisco and go to someplace else and see, you know, the actual... Comfortable, convenient, clean lifestyle of the typical American. Well, as a commuter here in the D.C. area, Brian, I'm not so sure about the convenient part of the car ownership. It's not we haven't totally. Oh, you don't have to live in Maryland, Russ. <laughs> yeah, I know, but that's just the way the way it is. Uh, even people who live in the state they work in do sometimes complain about the traffic here in D.C. Um, those, I want to go back to your list though. So about what's wrong with Europe and their standard of living. We've got uh, so they lived in cramped quarters without cars. Uh, they eat less meat. Well, there was another one. Was there another? Uh, those, one? those are the three. Uh, let's see. No, I guess there was. What was the one other one? Uh, oh, those, 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 those are the three big ones that come to mind. They have better cheese yes. than wine, though. You yeah. know, some say. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I will, I will give them credit that uh, the food that you buy at a European grocery store is tastier than what you'll buy at a typical American grocery store. So there, I think there is some difference in taste where they where they have this preference for quality. But still, I think you know, a lot of you know, you know, if the gas if the gas tax were lower, there's a lot of people in Europe who would really like to get have cars. You can even see, you know, in Germany, how much people enjoy having their cars. You know, it's, it's you know, they they put this enormous amount of money into getting these luxury cars so they can enjoy uh, the you know, a, fi- a fine drive through Germany. Driving very fast. And I think yeah. there's a lot of people who would, li- you know, a lot of other people in Germany who can't afford it, uh, who would really like to have a piece of that. But, but so let's but let's go back to the. I'm, I'm enjoying this cultural uh, conversation. Going back to the uh, the economics. Uh, in- incidentally, by this measure, Japan is even worse than Europe. So by by these three measures of. Of, uh, you know, of let's see, certainly certainly of, of, of living space on cars, I think that I've seen that they actually have a lower rate of car ownership, and then meat consumption also very low. So, while while in terms of uh, their official purchasing power parity, Japan is doing very well. In terms of these actual more concrete measures, I think they're doing pretty poorly. Well, yeah, I guess you'd have to be sure that these aren't selective. Um, there might be some other, might be just possibly a couple other measures where they. Yeah. Yes. Access to I, golf, I, I, yeah. you know, important yes. things, Brian. Access yes. to golf. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I think you see that's idiosyncratic, but I think it's it's a very standard for people to want to have a, have a, have a home where they don't feel cramped, to be able to drive around in a car and to eat some meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the three basics of human <laughs> three existence. Basics. Yeah, it was a, some reason uh, that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness won out over uh, roomy quarters. Uh, uh, your own horse and uh, a good chicken. Uh, but it, the interesting question. One of the many, I hope, is I think that dis- that difference in uh, quality of life. Uh, you, you know, the more serious comment here is that when we try to compare cost of living and income to get a measure of standard of living across countries, we have a currency difference that we have to control for. And you're raising, in the more serious vein, you're raising the question of whether quality of life, the quality of the goods that are being consumed, are really comparable. So you know, you have access to a you have a roof over your head, but how nice is it? How big is it? How big is the space you're living in, et cetera? My guess is, is that over time, uh, that difference has always been there. Uh, I think Americans have eaten more meat than Europeans mm-hmm. for probably 250 mm-hmm. years, uh, maybe longer. Mm-hmm. And I think probably had more living space because of 
the relative price of land and population density? I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. Do you have any thoughts on that? Right. I mean, there's you know, there's there's one question of just you know, is there a substantial difference in standard of living between Americans and Europeans? And there, I think the answer is yes. And Americans do have a standard of living that is properly measured, is uh, is is markedly higher. And it's something that you miss uh, when you know, if you just take a look at uh, you know, purchasing power parity, you know, uh, uh, per, per capita income. And footnote, uh, purchasing yes, power yes, parity yes. is is an attempt to correct uh, when you're comparing incomes across countries with the fact that it's not just the currency differences. You don't want to just use mm -hmm. the exchange rate, but the prices within the countries mm -hmm. are also different. So you want to look at how much the, the incomes buy, and that's mm -hmm. what people try to control for when they do that. It's not easy to do, by the way, mm -hmm. but that's what they're trying to do. Right. So, I mean, there's sort of the one question of just do Americans have a higher standard of living, and there's the other question of why. So that would be a whole other podcast at minimum. So You don't want to give me a 30-second reason for why? Well... <laughs> I mean, I think you know. I, mean, you know, I, I think you know. You know, a, a very big part of the reason is the U.S. has uh, traditionally had more free market policy than Europe. Europe is more regulated, more statist, and I think that accounts for most of the difference in, uh, in the difference. Um, so I, mean, I mean, just you know, if you had to, you know, thirty-second answer, that's the answer I would give. Yeah, I think the the interesting question there, and I think this is going to be a, a significant issue over the next uh, ten years. It's a fascinating question. This the sort of stylized argument there would go something like this. Uh, the American workforce and the American labor market is much more dynamic than Europe's. It is highly protected in many, many ways and highly regulated, but not nearly as regulated and and uh, restricted as mm -hmm. the European one. Uh, that right, has right. And, and also our regulations are much more weakly enforced. Very important, yes. Uh, <laughs> do you have a particular one in mind? Uh, yeah, actually, there, there was an interesting book I was reading a few years ago. I think it was called Confessions of a Labor Lawyer. Uh, this was a guy who uh, was a lawyer for, for, for labor unions, and he was comparing uh, U.S. and Canadian uh, U.S. and Canadian labor law with regards to unions. And basically, in terms of the letter of the law, the same things were illegal in the U.S. and in Canada. In both countries, it's illegal to fire someone for trying to organize a union. But what the guy did in this book, and again, you know, maybe he had, uh, maybe he was biased, but it seemed to me that he was giving a fair description of how the two countries' legal systems worked. You know, he's saying in Canada. When someone is fired for trying to organize a union, uh, it is uh, it, it, it's, it's very easy for him to get to uh, get his case in court. It doesn't take very long. The, uh, usually, the court goes and rules in favor of uh, the, of, of, the, of the person who's complaining, and he gets uh, very uh, very good compensation. Gets reinstated in his job. In the U.S., even though the law is exactly the same. Uh, it takes a lot longer in order to actually get your case before the board. The board very often rules against you. And uh, if they do, if they and if they do rule in your favor, all that you get is the difference between the earnings that you made during the period and the earnings that you would have had if you had stayed at the job. Hmm. So basically, suppose that you're earning forty thousand dollars at a job and you're fired for trying to organize a union, and then you're out of work for a few weeks, but then you go and you find another job, and so the net result is that by the time that your case has come to court, you have earned thirty thousand dollars rather than forty thousand dollars. In this case, at least uh, as I remember this guy explaining you uh, the way that the U.S. law works, is the employer only owes you $10,000. And if you found another job the day that he fired you, he owes you nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, find another job that pays equally well. Now, I was thinking, you know, the title of this chapter could have been why the U.S. unemployment rate is lower than the Canadian unemployment rate. So he saw this difference as clearly bad, but uh, you know, if you do have a regulation that's causing some harm, the fact that it's not enforced very well can be a benefit. Does Canada have a higher unemployment rate? Uh, yes. Uh, I don't... Uh, I think that it still does, at least for a very long time, it had uh, you know, one to two percentage points higher than the U.S., so something, something, something substantial. So getting back on track, the... the um, yes, which track were we on? Uh, we're, 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 well, I'm, I'm 
I'm, I want to stick with this um, the difference between U.S. and Europe. So U.S. labor regulations are less uh, restrictive, and as you point out, they're perhaps less enforced. Less enforced uh, so they're even less restrictive than they appear to be. And the result of that is, is we have a much higher turnover rate in the job market. We have, but we have a lower unemployment rate, and our private sector job growth is much more vigorous. As the, and the simple point being that the, the cost of hiring a new worker is relatively small in the United States mm-hmm. relative to the cost sure, of hiring sure. a new worker in, in right. Europe. Well, the price of hiring a worker and then changing your mind and deciding you didn't want that worker after all is a lot lower here than in Europe. Correct. Although it's higher than it would be under a, oh, sure, sure. a less regulated market. Mm-hmm. So you have that effect. Then, then you have this, this sort of safety net social welfare system, which is more generous in Europe than it is here, more um, comprehensive. So you know, one view says, well, you know, Europe has a slightly lower standard of living, lower growth rate, but they have more security mm-hmm. and they have more stability. And so therefore, uh, you know, Europe makes – so again, we go back to this issue. It's a matter of taste. Europeans don't like economic change. We're more tolerant of it. We have this um, ideology in favor of it, rugged individualism. Europeans don't care about, they don't like that, and so they are just choosing a different mix of of risk and return. I think that's true. No, what I say is it's really just the illusion of security. No, I mean, basically, what you have in Europe is if you are lucky enough to currently have a job, you have more security than you do have at the U.S. Although, if uh, you eventually lose your job. Uh, then you're in big trouble because then it's going to be very hard to find another job. But more importantly, there's a lot of people who don't have jobs who would like to get them, and they are securely unemployed. Right. So to say that people in Europe just in general have more security just just isn't right. Uh, they, you know, what they have is they have more security for some lucky people, and they have a securely bad situation for other people. Right. And you know now well. Uh, we aren't. This this uh, is not a podcast on happiness research, but let me go and plug my uh, what a, a point that I've been pushing, which is uh, right, stop stop. Yes, yes. So hang on. Tell I don't. I'm not sure all of our listeners know what happiness research is. Uh, why, don't, why don't you talk about that field for a second and and what does that mean? Ha- what is that? Yes. Well, uh, basically, there's the uh, time old the usual question of whether or not people are happy or how happy they are and what makes people happy. And in recent years in psychology and economics, there have been a lot of people who have started looking at this uh, using statistics and trying to actually figure out, well, if we really look at the data, what is it that makes people happy? What is it that doesn't make them happy? What makes them unhappy? Uh, So that's uh, the long and short of what happiness research is. Uh, Now, one of the interesting findings of happiness research is that while income per se doesn't do that much for people in terms of their happiness, unemployment makes them really miserable. Uh, time out. Time out. When you say doesn't do much for their happiness, and unemployment makes them miserable, uh, you got to give us a little bit of background on how these researchers measure happiness. Ah, well, generally they measure happiness by asking people how yeah. happy they are. So it's a slightly flawed measure, but it has it has. Still, I don't think that it's I don't think that it's as bad as as uh, many economists would make it out to be. You know, if you just think about your friends and say, you know, who do you think is happy? Who do you think is not happy? I think you have a, a fairly good idea. Again, you may be mistaken, and you may have a friend who wears a glum face who's really happy inside. But my guess is the people that you think of as being unhappy because they talk about the things that make them happy a lot really are unhappy. Well, I think the relevant question is, yeah. is whether the, the glum person that you think looks miserable when asked on a scale of one mm-hmm. – is it a one to five or one to ten? Oh, uh, well, you've got – you have several. You have one to – you have one to – you have uh, zero to two. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Very happy, pretty happy, not so happy. Okay. You've got you know one to t- you've got one to ten, zero to ten. You've got a lot of different scales. So let's take the one to ten scale. Yeah. So the glum person, mm-hmm. uh, you're presuming the glum person would say that he's a three, and the cheerful fellow would mm-hmm. say he's a seven or a nine or whatever. 
Right. Well, I mean, there actually has been research done on uh, correlating smiling frequency with professed happiness. How does it do? Uh, it works. Yeah. It works. People smile a lot, say they're happier. It's very unusual that a person would say they're a three on a scale of one to ten. Even the people who seem to be most unhappy will usually say like a six. <laughs> it's really hard to find someone who will say a three. Well, that's in America. Yes. It's actually true internationally. Yes. Uh-huh. It's, Again, you know, maybe there's a country. I think I, you know, in, in Asia, you know, you'll you'll get more low, you'll more actual low numbers. But you know, again, you know, say you're a three. That's even in Eastern yeah. Europe, where where my experience is, when you ask them mm-hmm. an Eastern European how happy he or she is, the usual answer is, eh, you know, how are you? I once had a Russian friend. I'd say, uh, I'd say, how are you today? And he would say. Fine, like all Americans. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we we tend to be fine, but the rest of the world's a little more nuanced, I think. Yeah. But. It's less than you think, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So go ahead. Yeah, I interrupted yeah. you. So, so this is right. happiness research where they go out and they ask people, mm-hmm. "How happy are you on a scale of one right. to 10? Now, one thing that they get, you know, one thing that gets a lot of attention is in happiness research is that once you've got enough money to eat and you're okay, it doesn't seem like there's a large effect of additional income on your happiness, which just goes back to our your common sense understanding. Money you can you know, money, money, you know, poverty can buy misery, but money can't buy uh, you know, true aesthetic happiness. But uh, what's interesting, more interesting to me is that there's another finding that unemployment per se causes a lot of unhappiness. Hmm. Unemployment makes people really miserable. Sure. Right? And even if you go and give them the same income they would have had when they were employed, they're still, they're, they're still a lot less happy than, than they would have had if they had, had a job and had that happiness. Yep. Or excuse me, they had a job and had that income. Now, what's interesting, a point that I've been pushing along these lines is that this is a way in which the American system is really much more humanistic and more concerned about the whole person than the European system. So in Europe, you have people who are unemployed for a very long time. It's very little prospect of getting a job, but you send them a check, and that's supposed to make it up, make it up to them. In the U.S., unemployment is lower. It's easier to find a job, and so people here, you know, they, they, get, they, get, they get their money. At the same time, they also have the pride of having a job. They don't feel like a loser because they're unemployed. So in this sense, the American system of less labor market regulation, uh, which leads to lower, which leads to lower unemployment and makes it easier to find a job, is really more concerned about human happiness and a richer understanding of what's going on you know, in the human psyche than the European system, which basically assumes that if you just give someone a check, they have nothing to complain about. Yeah, I think that's a pro- actually a profound point. Uh, I think uh, it's a common problem: people neglecting the dynamic effects of various regulations mm-hmm. and uh, just looking at the um, at the immediate outcomes and presuming that the intention of a law is equal to its outcome, and um, not mm-hmm. the case. Absolutely. So, uh, Russ, do we have time to talk about statistical discrimination? Um, well, actually, actually, I want to save that, because I, right. I wanted to, we're, we're almost out of time, and I want to turn to, the, right, turn to our mailbag, and we, maybe we can come back to that another time. Uh, uh, first, I want to say thank you, Brian. And You're it's, very welcome, Russ. It's been it, a pleasure. It's unusual. Most of our podcasts are done over the phone. Brian's here in my office as we're recording this, and I'm going to open up the mailbag and read a letter from a, a listener, and I'm going to give Brian a chance to weigh in as well, uh, to add a little variety to our mail feature. Um, but first, I will say my guest today has been Brian Campbell, a professor of economics here at George Mason University. You can visit econtalk.org to find links related to our discussion along with other podcasts. Now, my letter today uh, is from listener Ron Beatty, who responds to the Richard Thaler podcast, which has generated a lot of uh, interesting mail. Uh, Ron writes, I just finished listening to your podcast with Richard Thaler. Both of you failed to address what may be one of the most important effects of paternalism, libertarian or otherwise. In fact, it it may be more important with libertarian paternalism. 
British philosopher Albert North Whitehead argues that civilization advances by extending the number of operations we can, we can perform without thinking about them. So too paternalism. The more we rely on government or our employer to make decisions in our best interest, the more we'll assume they know best and accept a default. We surrender or let atrophy our willingness and ability to identify and act in our best interest. A single case of paternalism isn't the problem. Arguably, in a particular case, one could argue that the government or employer making the default choice for us is the best solution. The problem arises when we let the government or our employer make all or most of our choices. Making the choices that are in our self-interest very frequently, if not always, requires the ability to collect and analyze information, a knowledge base and skill that requires practice to gain and maintain. As such, it's all too easy to lose. To paraphrase Whitehead, paternalism, government intervention in our lives, advances by extending the number of decisions we can avoid by accepting a default choice, which we already know will be in our best interest. A brain and the knowledge of our, best, of our self-interest is a terrible thing to waste, a process that is already far too advanced in this country. Well, thanks for your letter, Ron. I'm, I'm reminded of the time I was visiting Santiago, Chile, and I got this horrible cold or flu. I'm not sure what it was, so I was totally out of it groggy, stuffy head. I wandered into a drugstore and started browsing the shelves with uh, only my mediocre Spanish uh, in hand. But the most interesting challenge came from the realization that the Chilean equivalent of the FDA, probably what the Food and Drug Administration, probably wasn't the same as the American one, and that the drugs I had access to in a Chilean drugstore without a prescription were probably more powerful. In America, I knew everything on the shelf was almost certain to be mild and relatively harmless. In fact, I worry it wouldn't be strong enough. But as the podcast with Sam Pelsman illustrates, drugs in America are probably too safe. The FDA is so careful it discourages innovation because of the cost of compliance. But the other fact is that being in Chile, I had very little experience thinking about drugs that might be more effective but more dangerous or with side effects I might not want. I was inexperienced in dealing with those trade-offs. I'm not sure I agree with you that the skill atrophies, but it's an interesting point. You raise another interesting point about the appeal of default-based solutions where the government makes one particular option, say, for a a a mandatory forced savings plan or some other regulation, uh, supposedly in my self-interest because I have this uh, psychological weakness that Thaler has done research on where I just – I don't do enough research. I just pick the default. So – If government emphasizes uh, the so-called best choice as the default, because that's what I'm prone to to do, and we got used to trusting that solution as being the adequate one, what are the incentives that creates for both citizens and government? Uh, It's a very interesting question to think about. Uh, Brian, do you have any thoughts on any of these issues? So, I mean, there's this uh, distinction between libertarian paternalism and regular paternalism. Do you think that everyone is that's clear to all the readers, or maybe we should go back over that? Well, we can go over that. That's fine. Sure, we got a minute. Right, so you've got regular paternalism, which is government acting like a father or a potter, saying, I know what's best for you. Here's what you have to do. You don't have a choice. I'm not going to let you smoke, or I'm not going to let right. you uh, buy guy. this. What? Date that guy or use that drug. Uh, ride that motorcycle without that helmet. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, and then you had what an interesting paper by Sunstein the Thaler talked about, which they called libertarian paternalism, which is a much milder version of paternalism. Right? So... Their, their claim is that really even libertarians shouldn't object to government or someone else uh, saying, look, here is your, your default option, which is what I, which I pick because it's best for you. And you're if free you, to yes, choose other yes, things. You're free, to choose, you're free to change the default, but I'm going to, pick, I'm going to make the default. I'm going, you know, if, you don't do, if you take no action, then the thing that is going to happen to you is what I consider best for you. And if you, on the other hand, if you take an action, then you can get something else. 
So this was proposed the reason, forward. The reason it's libertarian is because you're still it's yes. not the only choice. Right. You have more choices, but mm-hmm. one of them's easier than others. Yes. And you know, certainly if you are opposed to paternalism, I see every reason to th- see libertarian paternalism as an enormous improvement to have the social to have social security as an option versus to have to contribute. Uh, that would basically solve my problem. Yeah, it would. That would solve my good. problem, and uh, so, so, so many other so many other parts, uh, so many other areas of paternalism would would solve would basically solve the problem if you think that the person who says he knows best doesn't actually know best. Well, then uh, you know, that it's not that it's not it wouldn't be that hard under, under the scenario in order to get what you think is best, right? So really, all that it would be ma- well, it would only be affecting people who really don't care that much anyway. So anyway, this is the, this is their proposal. Now, in terms of, uh, so yes, I have yes, to correct you yes, there. Yes. They don't really propose uh, yes. that particular example mm-hmm. that, yes, that yes. Social Security would be the default yes. option, and, and mm-hmm. saving your own money for your own retirement would be mm-hmm. up to you. That would be a very attractive yes. uh, example, but mm-hmm. that's they're usually talking about cases of, for example, the, the one we talked about in the podcast would be a a um, government retirement plan. You're obligated mm-hmm. to contribute to your retirement. Mm-hmm. But there is a particular uh, plan, a mix of stocks and bonds, a particular set of investment vehicles that's the default that your money will go into unless you opt out of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an opt-out thing. Mm-hmm. You don't opt into a good one. You, you have to opt out of the one they choose. And, and Thaler's claim, which is an interesting claim, is that the, the one that was chosen as the default that you got unless you opted out did pretty well. Whereas mm-hmm. the ones that people chose on their own, it wasn't very good. So mm-hmm. this that, was with uh, the Swedish in Sweden, system? yeah. Yes, right. Uh, I mean, there I say, I mean, for that example, from what I've seen, he's right. So the you know the the the, uh, the default option, or actually, it was not a default option. It was the government's choice, but uh, it was the, but uh, they didn't default to it. So I mean, basically, in that piece, he was saying it would have been better if the government had made it a default. Correct. That's correct. Right. But in fact, it was not. The government, in fact, had 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 a public service announcement saying, "Make up your own mind. Don't right. just do what we're right. telling you to do." And it turned out in that instance that the uh, retirement fund designed by the econo- by the government economists well, you know, was actually a very good one, right? It had very low, you know, it basically it avoided many of the common errors that investors make. Right. So it was, you know, and his point was if you know if the if the uh, government would have been a default, people would have had a better retirement plan. And I think in that case he's right. The key thing to remember is he went and picked the very best designed government retire plan ever, yeah, and then compared private choice to it. Rather than uh, averaging over all the government retirement plans that have been picked, many of which have been really uh, quite bad, yeah, that's, including that's uh, our own. Point. Uh, anything about this atrophy idea? Right. This worry that people that uh, if we start relying mm-hmm. on others to make our decisions for us, we might get out of the habit of making good decisions. Well, I don't know if that's overall, true. I mean, I'm not so. It's not so clear to me that atrophy can't be optimal. <laughs> there are a lot of so. I mean, for example, uh, you, know, you know, when you go to restaurants, they, you know, they have a default option, right? The burger comes with certain uh, with certain toppings by default, and if you don't want that, then you have to go and tell them, "I want something different." Now, on the one hand, it's true that this atrophies your, you know, your your the amount of time and effort and thought that you put into exactly what is the perfect hamburger. At the same time, it's easier, and the restaurant is trying to pick something that most people like, so there is a reason to trust them, right? So. You know, over, overall, it's a case where I, you know, I would say yes. Well, maybe, maybe it's atrophying, but what's the big deal? Uh, the important thing is is uh, not to atrophy on things where you actually do care, right? So, the, you know, you know, so you know, on things where you do care, uh, you know, then the default, you know, then it's you know, not going to matter so much what the default option is because you actually have a preference. So, I so think, I mean, I mean, overall, if you think about the way the market works, we're being given default options all the time by businesses. And they're picking default options uh, to maximize profits, but a lot of times what maximizes profits is giving the customer something he'll be satisfied with. Yeah, they're in competition, which is, I think is the key point. The, um, 
certainly no good economist is interested in total freedom of choice. It's the question is who controls the restrictions on choice. We as individuals often confronted with a myriad of options use Google to reduce our choices. We don't just take a we don't want a random element of everything that's available on the internet. We want something to narrow our choices, but we make those choices. Right. We and might also say that the choice to want to defer to someone else is a choice. It's a choice, absolutely. And we so, do that all the yeah. time. So, I mean, you know, true freedom of choice isn't when you're forced to make up your own mind on, a, on every single issue that comes your way. It's when, if you want to make up your own mind, you get to, and otherwise you can rely upon what someone else is giving right. you. Right. When you're in, on the operating uh, table and the, uh, the doctor says... Uh, Scalpel. It's not with a question mark for you to say. No, I think that's the wrong choice. Uh, all right. We defer often to experts, uh, which is what this uh, libertarian paternalism is is somewhat about. I think the key question is who who controls the experts and uh, what are their incentives. Yes. You know what, what I what I'd say about libertarian paternalism is I think it'd be a nice idea to try <laughs> compared to what we've got. Uh, yes. So qu- ultimately, you may still have a qu- you may still have a quibble with it, but this is the kind of thing where I say it is a quibble. <laughs> It is a quibble. If we, you know, if we could, step one, get rid of all the actual non-libertarian paternalism we have. Step two, replace it with some libertarian paternalism. I wouldn't be losing sleep over that. No. I'd be saying, wow, I can't believe that happened. No, but I think it's going to be on top of. I think that's the worry. Uh, well, I'd like to hear from you. Or as a slippery slope towards yes, real paternalism. Exactly, which is, which is Ed Glazer's point uh, in a different podcast, one of his key points, which is uh, – a critique of Thaler's ideas. I encourage you to go to econtalk.org to listen to that or the Thaler original one. And please, I'd encourage all of you to, to uh, drop me a line, send comments or questions or reactions of any kind to mail at econtalk.org. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.